Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Norman Garrick, who is a professor of civil engineering at the University of Connecticut. Dr. Garrick is also a former member of the National Board of the Congress for the New Urbanism, CNU. Uh, he specializes in the planning and design of urban transportation systems, including uh, transit streets, street networks, parking, bicycle, and pedestrian facilities. Dr. Garrick is the recipient of the Transportation Research Board's Award for Best Research Paper in Policy and Organization, and is a Fulbright Fellow. Welcome, Norman. Thank you very much. It's nice to, for you to have me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we start, what exactly is Congress for the New Urbanism? Um, the Congress for the New Urbanism is an organization that started in the 1990s, early 1990s. Yeah. And the idea was that we needed a new approach to make in place in America. We had gone away from traditional placemaking and we had gone to a place where, to a, a situation where places, we were not making places. We were making, um, we were building housing, we were building um, shopping, we were building <laughs> office parks. Yeah. And they were all separated out. They were all um, in different places. So they didn't really come together to make community. Yeah. And the CNU was a group that thought there were many reasons why we needed to go back to an old, older way of making communities. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so this is a group of academics uh, as well as practitioners or just sort of an academic? Mostly academics. I'm okay. sorry, it's mostly practitioners. Um, okay. And actually, most it started out with a lot of architects. In fact... Oh. Um, some of the founding members um, are um, architects and some w ones that have become relatively famous. Um, so um, one of the most famous one is an architect from, um, he, he was a Cuban-American. Yeah. And he and his wife developed a town called Seaside. 
mm. in Florida in the in um, 1981, okay. and it was basically the first complete town that was built in America in 30 or 40 years. Mm. That's Andres Duane and Liz Platerzyberg is okay. Okay. the name of that pair. Um, I think people might know Seaside from the Truman Show. Yeah, I know. That's in for the Truman Show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's great. So I want to get into one of your papers. So this one is uh, entitled Automobile Dependency as a Barrier to Vision Zero, Evidence from the States in the USA. Vision Zero meaning zero fatality in, um, in traffic uh, accidents. Uh, you say with a traffic fatality rate of 10.6 per 100,000, as of 2013, I don't know how that number has changed since then, but it's more than triple that in the UK, the Netherlands and Sweden, the United States has the worst traffic safety performance of all developed countries. And you identified seven separate sets of factors that influence traffic safety, exposure, travel behavior, socioeconomics, macroeconomics, safety policies, and mitigating factors such as healthcare, you say. Um, could you talk a little bit about the data that you used here and if you have recent data, if anything has changed? Well, what has changed is that it's gotten worse in the U.S., <laughs> okay. but not just that it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse for a subset of people. It's gotten much worse for bikers and for people on foot. In fact, the traffic fatality rate for people on foot now is 50%. Um, greater than it was in 2008. So it's, it's really a shocking yeah. performance. Yeah. Um, the data, what we did was look at um, traffic fatality um, reported to the feds by the states. Yeah. yeah. And we developed a model, and so um, an economic model. Uh, um, I can't even remember the, the, the term now, the, the statistical term. But it was an um, economically based model that looked at um, factors that uh, would affect traffic um, um, fatalities, such as the level of um, automobility, the level of urbanity, etc. The um, the the um, healthcare, some proxies for healthcare, so things like that. I haven't looked at it recently, so I don't remember the exact <laughs> yeah, details. Yeah, but yes, those yeah. are the type of things we were looking at. Okay, yes. Okay. So. Um... You know, I, I didn't have any idea. So you said uh, road traffic injuries are one of the leading causes of death globally. Each year, over 1.2 million people die uh, on the world's roads, um, with millions more have to live with the long-term adverse consequences of serious injuries sustained in crashes. Uh, I remember Johns Hopkins, a paper came out of Johns Hopkins that said uh, that two uh, most dangerous things to do in the U.S. Uh, are driving an automobile or going to a hospital. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so 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 one of the things you say here, uh, you call it's a, it's from a, a paper in 2015, uh, Kuznets curve. And according to this curve, traffic fatalities increase with the level of development, usually measured in terms of GDP per capita, reaching a turning point at a particular point, level of development, and then decline. Now we haven't seen that in the U.S. Yes, we have. Um, the, we, um, the traffic fatalities peaked in the U.S. in na around 1970, um, 1970, 71 or 72. Okay. Um, and it's been coming down 
relatively steadily ever since. It's peaked at about 60,000 um, fatalities per year. Now it's at around 40. Okay. Okay. The, the, what we are comparing there is the fact that uh, if we take the Netherlands, the Netherlands also peaked around the same time, mm -hmm. but the Netherlands peaked at 3,000 traffic fatalities and is now down to more like 500. Wow. So yeah, they are so one-sixth of where they were um, in 1972. We are two-thirds. Hmm. So, so most developed countries uh, sort of reached that peak in the 1970s, and then most developed countries, uh, especially countries like Netherlands and Sweden, had a significant drop in, in fatalities, whereas we also dropped, but we now sit significantly above those countries, right? Yes, that is correct. Um, a lot of, um, and I, I should say, what we're talking about here are mostly countries in Northern Europe um, that uh, follow that pattern. Um, countries in Southern Europe, for example, are not as good. Um, Japan is a country in Asia that um, followed a lot of the same uh, similar patterns to the Northern European countries. Okay. And so I don't know if you have this data, Norman. Um, uh, you know, clearly developing countries is not, a, not an easy comparison, but a developed uh, economy like South Korea or Taiwan or something like that, uh, how does that compare to? Uh, I don't have those figures, but my guess, and, I th and it's fairly informed, is that um, Korea, South Korea and Taiwan would probably be doing better than the U.S. Yeah, okay, okay. And then, you know, we also find significant um, variance uh, among states in the U.S. Yes. Uh, for example, you say that North Dakota has a highest traffic fatality rate, uh, approximately 25 per 100,000 people, almost 10 times the rate of Washington, D.C. Yes. Uh, so and, and five times that of Massachusetts. So what do you attribute that to? Well, uh, as you mentioned earlier, there are lots of factors contributing, but the big factor, the big differences between states has to do with the, 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 the amount of driving um, that varies quite significantly from one state to the other. I mean, we always talk about Americans as being this and Americans as being that and Americans loving their cars. All of those things vary from state to state. So the amount of driving is maybe two or three times more in the best performing states versus the worst performing state. That's one thing. But the other thing is the type of urbanism, mm -hmm. whether it is really built for cars or it is more, it takes into account the needs for people on foot, for people walking. So basically if it's built for high speed travel, then that's where things start to fall apart. Okay, okay. Yeah, I remember seeing something, I think it was your research too, that you know, if you look at certain towns like Cambridge or Evanston, Illinois, these are college towns, uh, the, the, you know, the, the traffic, the, the use of vehicles is significantly low compared to you know, something else. So I would imagine if you look at college towns specifically, you would see a much better number, right, in general? You would see a much better number in general, but it's not just because they're college town. It's really about the, the philosophy and the attitude towards transportation. Cambridge stands out in New England. I mean, if you compare it to New Haven, for example, yeah. New Haven is starting to catch up, but it's not as good as Cambridge. 
But okay. if you start looking at college towns like, say, Tuscaloosa, it's not going to add up to the same kind of um, situation as you see in places like Cambridge. Okay, so so is there a sort of design attributes here, Norman? Um, is, so Cambridge really uh, designed this lot better than, let's say, Hartford? He, yes. Um, and what is interesting for me is I always like to go back and look at how things have evolved over time. Yeah. And I have done studies comparing Cambridge in 1960 versus Hartford in 1960. And in a lot of ways, when it comes to transportation, they looked very similar. Um, and Cambridge was continuing on a very auto-oriented, auto-dominant um, um, position for a long time until the early 1990s. And that's when you see policies started to change. And that's where you see behavior started to change also. And that's when you see the traffic fatality starting to, to, to go down also. So it's a very deliberate, you can tie a lot of what is happening to deliberate actions from governance, from the government at all levels in these cities. And from a design perspective, again, um, there was this issue of, you know, in some cities, the, the freeways going through the city, right? And yes. <laughs> where, where are we on that? I know that a lot of cities have pulled back from that. Uh, does it have a significant effect on, on this uh, number two? Well, what, what it has had on um, an effect is that it cities that did not get freeways penetrating their, their centers started from a, a a better position in the 1980s and 1990s. So if I talk about some of the cities that people stopped freeways, you will see something in common. Um, there are places that are always at the top of the list of quality of life. So San Francisco, um, Cambridge, Washington, D.C., Manhattan, all of those had huge plans for freeways to go through them. Hmm. And citizen activists stopped them. Yes. So so right away, those cities were at an advantage to start with as we moved into the 90s and the noughts. Hmm. So, so a lot of these things are really pointing to design. And we will get into you know, one of your recent articles um, around that as well. Uh, but uh, going back to, again, fatality rate, um, you know, some of these attributes that you use in the model, real gas price, unemployment, uh, have negative coefficients uh, at very high significance, uh, as to be expected, right? Gas prices go up, people drive less. Is that the issue or something? It's, it's as to be expected, but it's a little bit more complicated than people driving less. Um, one of the things we found was that, it, there, there was not a kind of a linear relationship between prices going up yeah. and, um, and um, gas, prices, gas prices going up and fatality decreasing. What we found was that the um, gas prices going up had not only the effect of people driving less, but people driving differently. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So, so there is a combined factor of people driving more carefully and people driving less. And we've seen some of that playing out right now during the pandemic. Um, one of my students just looked at some data which showed that the amount of fatalities in March, April, and May for this year, when very much fewer people were driving, 
is similar to the, la the last several years in that same time period. Yeah, you don't want to go to a hospital. <laughs> well, you don't want to go to a hospital, but also people are driving faster. So that, that so it's not so the the relationship between um, fatality and accident rate is not only about how much people are driving; it's also how they're driving. How they're driving. So. Yeah, are they driving more economically? Meaning, you know, uh, I think you get the maximum mileage if you drive at the speed limit or slightly lower than the speed limit. Exactly. Yes. Okay. okay so that is the. And that surprised me because, um, you know, I never expected that people are so purposeful about things like that. But yeah, there's yeah. been a lot of pa other papers that have shown the same thing. Yeah. So they might have figured it out by trial and error. I guess, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. And um, again, uh, very high significance to GDP per capita negative coefficient. Yes. Uh, it's basically saying um, as you get richer, uh, you bring it down. So there is a significant different difference between developing countries and developed countries, I would imagine. Um, it's, again, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Okay, so, okay. Um, you know, a lot of this research started when um, I was in sabbatical in 2011, and I started this research with a um, PhD student from Iran. Yeah. And I worked with a colleague. Um, her name is Carol Atkinson Palombo. She's from the geography department. Right. And they were meeting about the initial data. And what they saw was that there was always this cyclical wave to fatality patterns hmm. in America. And then they found out that the waves corresponding to gas prices and to economic conditions. Wow. So when gas prices increase, transport, um, traffic fatality decrease. When gas prices decrease, tra traffic fatality increased. Right, and right. so this is, um, it, um, it relates to things like the driving less, um, driving more safely, but also if people are unemployed, there's also less driving, but also people are more careful about driving also. So, so that's the relationship with the GDP going up and down. Okay, but, but uh, how does GDP connect there, Norman? Um, but why, would, why would accidents be lower when GDP per capita goes up? So firstly, let me just correct one thing. It's not necessarily that crashes are lower. It's that fatal crashes fatal. are lower. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Because um, a lot of times you you have the same number of crashes, but it doesn't necessarily result in people dying. Okay. Yeah, so, you, so richer countries have better health, uh, not health care, but better, better ways to... Um, uh, you know, to, to take care of an accident? Is that well, for that, that's, we actually accounted for those things separately. So yeah. it's, it's, it's actually more things like how old are the, the vehicles, for example. Oh, okay. Yeah. So if you have um, vehicles with um, the, the modern technology, uh, anti-lock brakes, um, so on, then it's less likely that if you're in, in a crash, you're going to die. Okay, okay. Yeah, and then you have, you know, vehicle per capita. The more vehicles there are, the higher the fatality. Uh, vehicle miles uh, per uh, driven per vehicle uh, makes intuitive sense. And then you used infant mortality rate as a proxy for healthcare. Yes. And, uh, and found significance again uh, and very, very high positive correlation. Yes, that's correct. And uh, would that be uh, infant mortality, I would imagine, is also highly correlated with development, right? 
That's correct. And the U.S. suffers in that regard also compared to countries like we have mentioned in Northern Europe. So um, that it does. We, we think that it's um, it's referring to things like um, the quality of healthcare, but also the quality of emergency response. Quality of emergency response. OK, OK. Uh, I know that you spent some time in Zurich, Switzerland. Yes, and, uh, I, I actually live there part time. Okay, okay, yeah, my my brother-in-law lives uh, in in the Zurich area, so I get to go there. Uh, not that not that much lately, but uh, I used to go there before. Yes, <laughs> and uh, you had a little uh, blurb in a in an article in a blog where you say Zurich, where people are welcome and cars are not. Yes, and, that was actually a video from my colleague. Um, um, in uh, Clarence um, Eckerson, who is a, um, he does video, video blogs, um, video um, short films um, yeah. about transportation, and that that one was about Zurich. Yes. Yeah, I mean that's a. So you say when it comes to transportation options and smart city planning, you can argue Zurich, Switzerland takes a top price in the world. Uh, the city has developed a number of policies and practices that make commuting, living, and working in Zurich a pleasant experience, whichever mode or modes of travel you use. Do you want to elaborate a little bit, little bit on both on the city planning side as well as on the tra transportation side? Okay, so from the city planning side, what is uh, great about Zurich is that it is a very compact city where it doesn't feel overcrowded. Um, so it has uh, mostly in the densest part, three, four, five-story buildings. Um, in other parts, lots of um, what we are now referring to as middle housing, so um, smaller apartment buildings. Um, that predominates in much of the city. Um, it has a hard... It's surrounded by um, hills. I suppose in, in, in Zurich, you would call it hills. Here, we would call them mountains. It's surrounded by mountains. Yeah. And the city has a hard edge. And all around the city is um, are these, um, what do you call them again? Um, allotments. Yeah. And then the forest starts. So you're always close to nature. And what the city has done over the last 20 or 30 years is to develop strong neighborhood centers which have all, the need, all your um, everyday needs. So um, for things like grocery, for going to school, all of that is taken care of in the neighborhood. So you see kids walking to school, you see um, old people going to the pharmacy, et cetera. So that's the, um, the um, urban planning side. And a lot of this has been really enforced or reinforced over the last 30 or 40 years. Hmm. Yeah, and, and you, you know, I, I know that you have done a lot of work in this area, Norman, uh, and that's about parking. So here you say, uh, back in the mid-1990s, by a city decree, I'm talking about Zurich again, yes. referred to as the Great Compromise, Zurich decided to keep the number of parking spaces fixed at current level. So if you need to create a new parking space, you have to get rid of something that's existing, right? Yes. And, uh, and so, what's the, so what's the issue with parking? The more parking that you have, the more automobiles you have, the more miles you drive... Uh, and generally, the less efficient the city is. That's a general idea. 
All of those are true. Um, I think the big thing that is true also is that it's about the quality of the environment. Um, so what Zurich did with that um, policy was to get rid of the, all the city squares in the 80s were basically parking lots. Hmm. And if you go to Zurich now, they've all been converted to places for people, cafes, just places for people to sit and hang out. And you would never believe that this was once, these were once parking lots. So just the quality of life, the idea that you have, you want to have a high quality for people to be attracted to the place. But then you have other things. I mean, the city that I compare it to is Hartford, where over between 1960 and now, we went from 15,000 parking spaces to 45,000, so triple the number of parking spaces. And the only way that can happen is either you build very expensive underground parking, which is about $50,000 per space, hmm. or you take down buildings to make parking. So what has happened is that Hartford has become a place where you have buildings, tall buildings, surrounded by parking. So 22% of the downtown Hartford is parking lot. And it's not just a question of quality of life. It's also a question of economic viability because all that land that used to be paying taxes are paying almost nothing in taxes to, to the city. And it's going to be worse as you look forward, right? So if you if you buy this idea that autonomous vehicles are going to really take over, uh, which seems quite likely, then um, you know we might uh, very quickly get into a, a modality where you're not really keeping vehicles; you're just uh, getting them when you need to you know, need to go somewhere. Right. But um, actually, the, one of the uh, things that people are selling autonomous vehicles on is the idea that you won't need any parking anymore because the cars will just be roving or they will go to the edge of the city. I yeah. don't buy any of it. And I don't really <laughs> think that autonomous vehicles, you know, we have been promising for the last 10 years that yeah. autonomous vehicles are around the corner. We're going to get it in five years. And it hasn't happened yet. And I don't see any progress being made towards um, the so-called level five autonomy. Oh, okay. okay. But, but I should say something about Hartford, yeah. about if it will continue getting worse. Hartford has actually changed its parking policy and is now trying to reverse all the damage that have been done over the last 50 years. Hmm. So um, I think that's where the promising... Um, potential lies is that cities are finally beginning to understand that these auto um, enabling technology is not necessarily good for the city. Right, right. Yeah. And again, going back to Zurich, uh, where, you know, the sort of city planning and transportation design comes together, you say there's an intricate series of over 4,500 sensors throughout the city designed to monitor the number of cars entering its limits. Uh, when that number exceeds the level, um, Zurich streets can comfortably accommodate. The cars are halted on highways and main roads into the city until congestion is relieved. So you are sort of proactively intervening before you get a congestion. Yes, um, what you're doing there is, um, so in Zurich, there is a carrot and a stick approach. And the carrot yeah. is... Uh, 
the fact that the city is so nice and the fact that the transportation system, the um, transit system is so good. That's the carrot that attracts people to, to give up their cars. The stick is um, not providing a lot of parking and also not allowing cities from the suburbs. And that's another thing. I mean, Zurich is really setting the agenda in um, cities like Hartford, the agenda is set by the suburb because the, the suburb needs a lot of cars to be parked in the city. The city provide the parking. Zurich basically said, we're not going to do that. And if you want to take advantage of this city, you're going to either put up with the congestion or you're going to use the transit. And now they've developed a, an extensive suburban train network in a, in a metropolitan area of less than 2 million people. And so what that means is that you don't necessarily need to drive, right? So you have commuter trains, your buses, you have uh, a 15-line tram system, you say. Yes. And my understanding is that you have sort of a, you know, a one price ticket, right? You, you can buy one ticket that allows you to basically take any modality. You can. And um, what is interesting is that it's just how cheap it is. So um, when we were thinking of moving to Zurich, we thought this is such an expensive city, we'd never be able to afford it. And when we actually put the numbers together for the different categories, hmm. the amount of money we're going to save from transportation means that we can afford to live in Zurich. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So it's that much of a that much of a difference. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, um, Norman, you also spent time in Kingston, Jamaica. Yes, that's my hometown. That's your hometown. When I, you know, when I think about Kingston, I think about Sabina Park and cricket uh, <laughs> ball going at 140 kilometers an hour. Okay. But, uh, but other than that, so it's uh, you. You have there are some issues, right, in terms of design in Kingston. Uh you um you blocked out a, a bit there could you just repeat what uh, you said they, so there are some design issues right so walkability and, and oh yes so kingston is an example of a city that has really tried to accommodate car travel and it's ironic because most people can't afford cars i would say more than 80 percent of the population can't afford cars but even if you can't afford cars you have been it's become such a car dependent city that you you will pay up to sixty percent or more of your salary to to have a car. I, when I lived there, that actually was the case. Almost all my paycheck was going towards maintaining my VW at the time. Wow! Yeah, and so so essentially, you cannot really really move without a car because the city is not not at all walkable. It's not walkable. It's not comfortable to live there without a car. Um, and so, and it's, you know, it's, there are no trees, a lot of things. It's not, it's not just that there are no sidewalks. There are no sidewalks. There are no trees. Um, the streets are choked with um, cars not moving. And these are secondhand Japanese cars because most people can't afford new cars. Mm. So you can just imagine the pollution level in the city. So just like uh, Hartford is turning back the, the bad design elements from the past, do you think there is a way to, way to redesign the city or is it, is it really difficult because of the population and everything else? It could be done. It's just that, I mean, you know, the American dream of um, that we sell to the rest of the world is about cars. It's about 
Um, in Jamaica, people will talk about, oh, we would like a, a place to be like Miami. <laughs> so that's their, their vision of what a developed place is. Mm. And it's really hard to counteract that um, vision. And also the um, rich people, the political class, all of those are wedded to a car-oriented way of doing things. So it's it's not about the population growth is more about this vision of what people see as development in a place like Kingston. Yeah, so it, it kind of uh, filters into culture, right? Sometimes in developing countries, the car is considered to be a status symbol. Definitely. So, so even if you don't need a car, <laughs> your, your goal is to get a car. Yes, uh, definitely. I mean, it's. Um, I remember I lived in Kingston in 2004. For, um, 2004, and I remember I met a friend. I had a friend there that told me that if you don't own a car, you have to dress smartly <laughs> because you—that's the image that you show to people. But if you have a car, it doesn't matter. Right, it's almost like clothing. Yeah, exactly. It 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 covers up for all the other sins. It it doesn't matter. Uh, so I want to get into another paper um, you have. So the broken algorithm that poisoned American transportation. Um, and I find this really interesting. So travel demand models come in different shapes and sizes, as you say. They can cover entire metro regions spanning across state lines or tackle a small stretch of suburban roadway. And they've gotten more and more complicated over time. And you're talking specifically about the Louisville, Southern Indiana, Ohio River Bridge yeah. project, right? Yeah. Actually, I didn't write that paper, but um, <laughs> that was a colleague from, uh, from um, um, Vice. Okay. Uh, he, I, I was interviewed for it. Ah, okay. Okay. You want so to I don't want to take credit for his words. <laughs> ah, okay. You want to talk a bit about it? I found uh, you know, the idea that these models that we create uh, and use in policy making. Uh, seems to get us in the wrong, <laughs> wrong position uh, in many cases, right? Yes. Um, so I don't know if your audience or if you are familiar with Jane Jacobs. I'm not. Okay. Jane Jacobs is an urban planner that lived in New York City in the 1960s. Yeah. And she was one of the people that helped to, to prevent um, Lower Manhattan having three freeways across Lower Manhattan. Mm. <laughs> okay. And she is considered to be the major guru of urban planning in America. Yeah. And w one of the things, she talked about this in the 60s. She said that um, traffic engineering is, um, is, is, is a pseudoscience. Mm. And basically, that's what that article, um, what, 60 years later, is, is coming to the same conclusion. Yeah. And yeah. Yes. Go ahead. No, it's, it's basically the idea of traffic engineering is that we need to accommodate traffic growth. Right. If traffic has been growing in the past, we assume that it's going to continue to grow in the future. And since it's going to grow in the future, we need to accommodate th that growth. And the way to do that is by building bigger roads, making more parking. And that is basically the, base, the, 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 the foundation on which traffic engineering sits. Right. So, so you make a set of assumptions, um, uh, people, uh, uh, population growth, 
uh, movements uh, and so on. And so you come up with a sort of a demand for travel, right? And then yes. you design for it. Uh, to make the matters worse, I think, uh, Norman, you know, so when, uh, when the Congress allocate money, uh, you know, every congressman and every senator is trying to get money to their state. Exactly, and yes. so essentially you say, hey, come up with a project, uh, you know, <laughs> that's expensive. Yes. And they will try to get it funded. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's a vicious cycle of um, funding and political uh, patronage and a, a science that really is not um, paying attention to the reality of this, of what's going on in the ground. On the ground. Yeah, I mean, the, the worst part of this is what you say, which is, you know, you make bad policy decisions, and at some point you have to uh, reverse it. You have to remove things that you build. Yes. Um, you have another blog, uh, I think, Henry, uh, burying a 1950s planning disaster. Yes. Uh, partial removal of the inner loop uh, might make Rochester, New York that finally breaks a ruinous mid-century mode. you want to talk a bit about that? Yes, well, I wrote that um, about five years ago, um, and I had just come back from Rochester. And what they were doing at the time was they were um, trucking in mud from the lake and dumping it on the freeway. Hmm. And they have basically, um, since then, they have gotten rid of a quarter of this ring road, ring highway that that choked the downtown. And now, and that has been so successful that they're actually thinking of removing another quarter. <laughs> and so, so, the, so how, does it, how does it affect city growth, the, the inner uh, loop? And there are many cities who, who that, have, that have that design, right? Inner and outer loops. Yes. So um, one of the ways, and there are many ways that it affects city growth, one of the things that happened in Rochester and Buffalo and New York and um, Hartford yeah. Yeah. is that, so the metropolitan area had 1.5 million people around 1970. Hmm. They still have 1.5 million people. <laughs> okay. But the difference is that now the 1.5 million people are distributed over a much wider area. So what the freeways did was sucked out the life out of the cities and out, out of the inner ring suburbs and placed them further out. Hmm. So it's like this. Um, another 1960s um, writer about transportation, he referred to it as a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. That we're just building new and building new and building new. And I think we have come to the end of that cycle in Connecticut because it... You ran out of money. It's just disastrous. <laughs> so yeah. that's one way that it does um, one effect of the, the, the freeways coming into cities, the parking in cities. It killed the downtown. It killed the cities. And it spread the growth all over the countryside. Yeah, I mean, the, the irony about this, Norman, is that, you know, policymakers, whenever they need to stimulate the economy, start talking about uh, shovel-ready projects. Exactly. And, yes. And uh, let's go build something, <laughs> you know, somewhere. Yeah. And the problem is, you have to essentially bury it at a later time uh, after having uh, suffered all the all the bad effects of it. Yeah. Well, if uh, policy um, the the shovel ready projects are almost always highways. Yeah. That's yeah. and that's the easiest thing that we're geared up to build. So we just keep doing it. We just keep making the same mistakes. 
yeah yeah and so so in conclusion norman you know if you look forward five years um you know we can definitely talk about uh, connecticut cities i mean we have major issues right uh, hartford bridgeport uh you know some great cities uh from the 1900s have sort of run down yes um what would be the the policy aspects that you would focus on uh, to uh, not specifically connecticut but many of the cities where you know bad city planning and bad traffic planning uh really kind of um killing the city so to speak yeah well <laughs> this is such a complex subject but i think in connecticut i think the first thing that is happening is the realization that what we had been doing for the last 50 years is not working. Yeah. And so you see um people making um it's I I was going to say that people are talking now, but we're doing more than talking because we have we have started to invest in public transit. So for example, living in stores, I used to always have to use my car. Yeah. Over the last three years, I have I've used my car so rarely because I often the only other place that I usually go regularly is into Hartford, and now there's a bus to Hartford. Hmm. We have the busway between New Britain and Hartford. We have the new um, train line between um, um, New Haven and Springfield. So you're seeing signs of change. but i don't think the politicians and the policymakers always understand what it is they're trying to achieve so yes they think it's just about changing the transportation system they don't understand the policy the land use policy side of how you start to change the land use so that it fits in with the transportation i think that's going to happen over time but these things are really difficult to turn around and but i think the the first thing what that was needed is the recognition that we need to go in a different direction and that is happening i think what is needed now is a better understanding of how land use and transportation works and why it is so important to get the two things uh moving in the in the same way right right yeah and i mean we have good examples right you know going back to the zurich model Uh, it's a network. For example, I live in the Groton, New London area, as you know. Yes. For me to get to an airport in Providence or or Hartford, you know, there are there are no alternatives in Zurich. You can get into a train and get to the airport. Yep. And so it's just a just a lack of understanding of the network. Um, you know, it's not just not one modality. You have to have trains, buses, and trams and other modalities kind of working together. together yes right um you know uh, it's not like we have to reinvent any of this i mean we can just look to european cities and understand from them yes <laughs> but, but, but no it yeah. you you're so right it's it's not i mean we're always looking for the next big technology that's going to save us <laughs> and it's really the what the technology that is needed is understanding how to make systems work together yeah yeah Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Norman. Thanks so much for spending time with me. And thank you. Um this was a nice, uh, very interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> Covers a lot. <laughs> thank you. All the best. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.